All right, well, good morning, everyone. Um, so welcome to Building a Better Nonprofit. Uh, my name is Ken McQuiller, and I'll be your presenter today. Um, a little bit about myself, that's my family there, our about 18-month-old son and my wife, who's also right here. Um, we are urban missionaries through the Assemblies of God. We're U.S. missionaries to the inner city of Cleveland. Um, I have been there personally about five years. Um, I kind of got connected to Cleveland. I was born and raised in New York. Um, I went to school in North Point Bible College up in Massachusetts. And I really, um, I was looking for an internship. So I just got connected to U.S. missionaries in Cleveland, the Willard family. And I really fell in love with the inner city. Um, I really felt like that's where God wanted me to be. So once I graduated, I packed up my car, moved to Cleveland, and became a missionary. Um, so through our ministry, we have planted a community church. We have um, a pretty small congregation, but our focus is really reaching out to our community. And um, so yeah, I've been there five years. And through our ministry, we serve in two different nonprofits, as you kind of see in the picture here. First, we are urban missionaries through the AG. Um, we serve at a church, and through our church, we have started two nonprofits. The Learning Center is an after school program. Um, we had started just out of a great need in our neighborhood. If you know anything about the Cleveland school system, there's a lot of struggles with it. Um, just kind of a, to give perspective, our school is just starting hybrid learning this Monday for all students. Um, typically, the Ohio Department of Education gives them failing grades in pretty much every category. So one of the ways that we hope to reach our community is through an after-school program where we give homework help, reading help, to kind of level the playing field for them. And most importantly, we still give them Jesus because you can help people all you want socially, but if you don't help them spiritually, it means nothing. So um, that's one that we do, and that's where we spend a lot of our time. We've also started another nonprofit within the last year. It's called the Tavern Coffee House. Um, the name comes from the building that it's in. It used to be an old bar. Um, and through a crazy God story, we actually were able to acquire the building for free. Um, and God is really awesome like that. But through it, we were... Um, kind of envisioning what we want to do with the space, how we want to continue to reach our community, and really we want to create a coffee house where we can provide jobs, job training, and be a safe non-alcoholic place in a very needed neighborhood. Um, so through all of this, we really saw a lot of growth in our funding. Um, really how I got involved, um, I'm one of the main grant writers for our after school program. Um, as well as being a missionary associate and all the other stuff that I do. I really use that as a way to help raise funds. And I really enjoyed kind of figuring out what grants and grant writing looks like. And really, God continued to bless our ministry every step of the way. We started this grant writing process in 2017. And that year, we had an income of about $25,000 towards the Learning Center. Um, that went to a lot of like the programming costs. Like We didn't have rent, but we had utilities. We had to figure out how to do um, different field trips, supplies, and everything like that. At that time, nobody took a salary. Last year, um, despite all of the stuff and the challenges of COVID, we actually were able to grow our income to over $200,000. So that's a huge testimony to God. Um, I can't take credit for that. Um, God really gave us the right people to talk to, gave us the right connections, and then also really built us up through that. Um, and something else that I really felt passionate about is the nonprofit world. So two years ago, I had started a master's program in nonprofit administration. I'll be graduating from that in May. So um, God has been really good to our ministry. We're really excited about what God has for our future as well. So that's a little bit about us and our ministry. So today, we're going to be talking about a few different things. Um, first of all, why should your church have a nonprofit piece? Um, what is the value of it? Not just practically, but also biblically. Secondly, kind of the general process of acquiring a 501c3 that's separate from your church. Um, third, some basics with grant writing and kind of the 
general outline of that. Um, I can't go through every single nuance of it because I just don't have the time for that, but I can give you some pointers and tips there, as well as some other tools and resources that I've learned along the way that won't just help if you're starting a nonprofit or if you have a nonprofit, but also can help your church as well. And then some time at the end for questions and answers. So, your church, I believe, should have a nonprofit. I'm not just saying this as someone that's studying nonprofit as someone that um, works in the community, I do really feel that churches should have their a separate nonprofit piece to what they do. Not just doing the Sunday services, not just doing midweek or youth group, but having that secondary piece. And I believe that part of that reason is through this verse here, Acts 1.8. Very familiar verse, but you will receive power when the Holy Spirit comes upon you. And you will be my witnesses in Jerusalem and in Judea and Samaria and to the ends of the earth. Um, as you may know, Jesus was telling his disciples this as he was about to go to heaven. The Holy Spirit's coming. And through that, the whole world is going to get saved. We're going to see an amazing transformation. God's going to do some great things. And we see it all throughout the book of Acts. God doing great things in all of the areas. And I feel like sometimes we focus so much on the ends of the earth. Samaria and Judea, but we forget about Jerusalem. And I feel like through starting a nonprofit, we can be those people to make sure that we're taking care of our Jerusalem. I feel like having that nonprofit piece, whatever that is for your context, whether it's a food bank, whether it's childcare, whatever that may look like, it gets you more involved in your community. It gets you more involved in that that Jerusalem. Cuz so often like people may see your church is, oh, it's, well, it's just that church. But when you get involved in the community, you can see so much bigger and greater change. Also, it gives you a very new audience. Um, through our after-school program, which during COVID we had to shift to a learning pod, so we have about 50 students that come in, they do all of their online learning, and then they also get Jesus too, they get a meal, and then um, they go back home. A lot of those children, a lot of those families would never step foot in the doors of a church, but we're still ministering to them as though they are. Um, we have that opportunity to really come alongside each and every one of them. Um, sometimes, and we know this, if you look at the news over any span of time, you know that there's a lot of people in the world that hate the church. But we all know that there's a lot of people that need the love of Jesus. And sometimes the bridge between those two is having that nonprofit piece. Um, and then also, it provides your ministry with a new funding stream. Obviously, money is not the end all be all. God is a God of provision, God will give us everything that we need. But sometimes, this is a way that God can provide for us. Um, maybe you have someone on your staff that only works part time but really has that passion to be there full time. Sometimes adding the nonprofit piece can give you that income that you may need to put you over the edge. Um, or like for us, one of the ways that we can stay and do what we do full time is by being part of the nonprofit. And there's a lot of people that can be more engaged in the community just because of that extra piece. And also it brings not just funding but also extra resources. There's a lot of people that will reach out to us because we have this after school program because they know that we work with kids and they'll say, hey, we've got this whole thing of food. Do you guys want to give it out? We have um, a lot recently PPE, masks, hand sanitizer, the whole nine. And it's because of the connections that we've had by starting a nonprofit that we've really been able to see that. And for me personally, it's really built my faith um, and strengthened my faith in God. Not just as a missionary, where I see God really continue to provide for us, where I started out and I didn't really know what I was doing. Like, I came in as a missionary and I got like fundraising training, but like, I was never told in Bible school like how missionaries raise funds. Like, I actually have my major in pastoral ministry. I was never really kind of gone through those steps. And it's been kind of a way that God has grown my faith. And even through our nonprofit and our after school program, we've seen God really provide for us in miraculous ways. Um, just to give a quick story, there is 
where we used to have our after school program, we were out of a house, a house that was fully renovated to just kind of give our kids a place to go, a nice safe place right in the neighborhood. Our next door neighbor was not a fan of us. Um, it was a very spiritual thing. Like a lot of times when they would hear the kids, like they would get really mad. They would try to, they always were trying to like mess with us and try to make us feel very uncomfortable. And like we could tell it was like a spiritual battle. One day we get a knock on the door from Ohio Department of Jobs and Family Services saying, we've been told that you guys are having kids here illegally. So of course like we're panicking, we're trying to figure it out. And through um, a huge set of God's circumstances, we were able to not shut down at all and God was able to provide for us. Um, and through it, because we weren't licensed at the time, um, God was able to get us an exemption license to have our kids there however we wanted to do it. And that's an amazing story. And then later on we find out that the Ohio Department of Jobs and Family Services does not give out exemptions very often. Like we were told that like we were like one of like 10 people like throughout all of Ohio that have had that. So like praise God for that. Amen. And I look at my own life and how God continues to provide through not just through grants and through donations, but just like the people that we encounter, the the times where we're like, man, we're really low on snacks and then somebody will come and give us a whole bunch of snacks. It's really been really cool to see how God continues to provide. So for me personally, I see a way of having a nonprofit is a way that you can build your faith. It's a way that God can continue to provide for you and you can rely more on Him. So, let's say you want to start your own nonprofit, something separate from your church, um, creating like a whole different 501c3. The first step is what would that look like for you? What is the need that's in your area? It doesn't matter whether you're from Cleveland, whether you're from Toledo, Cincinnati, anywhere in between. There is a need in your community. Um, if you don't know what that need is, the first people I would say is ask your congregation. See what they see in their neighborhoods. See what they see in their community that is a need that you can meet. It could be food, like creating a food bank, creating a feeding program to make sure that everyone gets what they need. It could be education. Maybe the education system in your area is very poor. Maybe it's child care. Child care is very expensive, and sometimes people need affordable child care. Um, there is a church, a Baptist church, that's on the west side of Cleveland um, that my wife and I had gone to. Um, we were looking for a, a rock climbing gym, and we we're like looking around, looking around, and this address brought us to a church. And it turns out that that church actually has a rock climbing gym in their basement. And they operate it as a nonprofit to reach out to the Hispanic community that's there. So it's a way that they can just really reach out to people that may not be necessarily churched, but they'll come in and then they'll hear the love of God. And from there, we can see transformation. So take some time, think about it, pray about it. Like, I'll ask you guys right now, what would be one thing that you could say off the top of your head in your community is a huge need? Childcare. Childcare. What was that? Food. Food. Yeah, food's definitely a big one, especially like now during COVID. In a weird sense, like uh, also a basketball gym for grown men to play in men's leagues. Like they just, there's one really rough area. If we all have to go there, it's, it's so rough. People just always say there's a need for this, but we don't have the facility for the men's league. That's not super competitive with Ohio State players and all that. Yeah. Yeah. Well, that's a big one, too, is, like, just recreation. Having, yeah. like, adults, children having a place to go. Because, like, cool. yeah. Idea. Yeah. Like, that would be something that's great, like, creating, like, a league, being, like, having that opportunity just for people to meet and for people to, like, not have to pay out the nose and then feel mad because everyone is taking it, like, it's game seven of the NBA Finals, you know? So whatever that need is in your community, find out what it is, identify it, pray about it. And then I would say it's best to hire an attorney to kind of help you with some of the paperwork. 
This isn't something you have to do. You can do it through different things, like there's a website, LegalZoom, that you can establish a 501c3 with. I recommend an attorney because then you can kind of get everything set from the beginning as opposed to kind of backtracking. But once again, I know legal fees can be very expensive and whatever may work best for your specific context. Um, more than likely someone that has experience in the nonprofit field. Yeah. Um, sometimes church attorneys too, like attorneys that work with churches, because they'll know they'll be a little more familiar with nonprofit law. But kind of anyone along those lines. Um, next, you would have to create a board of directors. Um, I know especially some pastors don't have the best of board of directors as it is. But having a board of directors is a huge part of the structure of a 501c3. And it's something like if you're starting this nonprofit, you can kind of pick and choose who you want. And having a good board will help in the long term in getting better funding as well. Um, a lot of times they say one of the best practices with having a good board is having it very diverse not just racially, but having a good balance of male and female, having diverse career fields, so like not having everyone from the same area. Like if you have an attorney on that board, um, our board we have a CPA as well. Um, having a pastor also kind of keeps the faith-based aspect of it as well. So having that board of directors kind of thinking through who are people that I know that would be passionate to make sure that this thing continues on. Because our goal isn't to just have it be our thing, but to continue it on after we go on to whatever God has for us next. Is there a minimum, maximum number that's... Um, there is, you have to have a minimum of three right. to start out. Maximum, it all depends on how you design it. Um, some boards will have like 9, 10, 11. Some boards have as many as like 20, 25. It all depends on... Okay what works best for you. Um, so after you have your board, then you have to file articles of incorporation with the state of Ohio. That's how you get your EIN, your employee identification number. And then you can file with the IRS, which is a 1023 form to apply for 501c3 status. Um, through that form, it's very detailed about asking things such as, what is your business plan? What programs are you going to do? How is your fundraising and funding going to work? So through a 1023 form, it's a long time. That's part of the reason why I say hiring a lawyer would be better. But um, it's not like a completely horrible process. Um, sometimes it <laughs> could take months. Um, it could take months to get what's called a determination letter. <coughs> which is the, the letter that says that you officially have a 501c3. Um, this is kind of the gold standard, especially in the nonprofit world, because a 501c3, as you may know, not only makes you tax-exempt, so any income that's related to your mission is not taxable, but it also allows tax deductions for people that give. So whether it's individuals that would give to it, in, um, corporations, or foundations that would also give you grants, that's all tax deductible for them. Um, there are other 501, or there are other nonprofits, but 501c3 is usually the one to get because it has the best benefits, not just for you, but for anyone else that's connected to you. Um, so once you have your 501c3, that's when you can start really going towards grants and grant funding. Um, I can say from experience, like I've probably written about 20 to 30 grants over the last few years. Um, I'm giving just some of my experience with it and then also some of the stuff that I've studied as well. First of all, in this talk, I'm only going to focus on private foundation grants, not necessarily government or corporate grants, mainly because I don't have personally much experience with them. Government grants can be very tedious. And especially starting out a nonprofit, it's a little harder would, to get them out. Would the government ones be more less friendly to faith-based? 
Um, it depends on the it depends on the government grant because some of them there's actually one through the state of Ohio where they seek out faith-based initiatives. Um, it all depends on kind of what you're doing it for. Um, I'll get a little bit more into that aspect later, but yeah. Um, Are you specifically focusing on ministry here, or are you, does this branch into both? It kind of branches into both. Okay. Um, I'm going to focus a little bit more on like the incorporated side, okay. but also I think a lot of these tools and tips will help for ministries as well. I have a question. Mm -hmm. Can you have an LLC nonprofit? Um, you can. It's not a good idea. Not a good idea. Yeah, it's... um. Like, that's one of the, like, it's kind of more considered a social enterprise. That's one of the newer type of, like, nonprofit organizations. The only issue is a lot of times with grants and other funding, um, a lot of foundations won't give to LLCs, mainly because of the, the tax benefit for them. And also, as a foundation, they're required to give a certain amount to 501c3s. So LLC can work. Um, there's actually another one, L3C, so Low Profit Limited Liability Corporation. But um, personally, I would say it's probably better to do 501c3 because of the, the benefits of it. However, there are benefits for it. Yeah, we're incorporated, but I just have a, fine, a hard time keeping good board members. Yeah. It's just like, I shouldn't have been an LLC. This is too much. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. Honestly, that's one of the biggest issues, too, is finding people that are good board members that will continue to do what not only what they're charged to do, but will stay on and continue to want to see it grow. Getting those passionate people is really hard to find. Um, so yeah, we're going to be focusing just on the private foundations. So like a lot of times when you hear the such and such foundation, usually like someone's last name or whatever, um, we're going to be focusing on that. Um, I say that local small foundations are key. Um, a lot of times like for example, in our neighborhood, the Cleveland Foundation is by far the biggest giving foundation in our area. But starting out, there was no way they were going to give to us because we're way too small for what they're looking to do. Like, they're looking to make change in, like, the thousands while we're hoping to make change with, like, 50 to 100 people. Um, so, like, and a lot of, like, the foundations that you may know, like the Ford Foundation, the Kellogg Foundation, those are good on, like, the national level for a lot bigger organizations, but starting out going very local, going very small, is usually the way to go. It's kind of that building up towards it. Because, like, at first, if we were to try to apply for the Cleveland Foundation when our ministry started, like, 10 years ago, they, they wouldn't have laughed in our face, but they would have said no. Um, now, they might or might not give to us depending on what we're asking and kind of what we're connected to. And they have given to us through kind of different collaboratives too. So um, all applications are very different, um, but they typically have similar elements. Um, a lot of times foundations will have a specific focus, whether it's they focus on the environment, but they still do stuff with like education. Um, they focus on racial diversity. They focus on um, feeding programs, uh, servicing low-income communities. Whatever their focus is, a lot of times they'll have questions that are geared towards that, but they'll still ask kind of the basic same elements, and I'll go over those in a little bit here. Um, something that I really, really recommend is make sure that you contact the foundation before you apply. Because um, a lot of times, like, if you go on their website and you're looking and you're like, wow, they really fit what we do. A lot of times you may think that they fit, but they're like, well, we don't really fund that, even though it says that they do. Um, and also it saves you a lot of time. If you're hiring a grant writer, it saves you a lot of money if you make sure, okay, this is something that'll be a fit or something that won't be a fit. Um, so it's always important to try to make contact. Not just for that reason, but it's also good for them to have a face or a voice. Um, we've done a lot of stuff, obviously, via Zoom because it's not, you can't really meet with people in person. Um, but a lot of times just meeting 
seeing that face, when they see the name come up in like their grant applications, it's like, oh yeah, I remember them. And they were awesome, so let's give money to them. Um, and some of the attachments that you may need. Because um, a lot of times with grant applications, they'll ask for specific attachments. First, they'll almost always ask for a determination letter, which is your proof that you are a 501c3. Because a lot of times they'll say, unless you're a 501c3, we can't give to you. Um, they'll also ask for a board approved budget, just so that they have an idea of like how much money you're raising, where your funding is coming from, and how much it'll cost for the whole thing, even though they, they're probably not going to fund the whole thing. Um, also, if it's for a specific project or a specific program, they'll typically ask for that budget as well. So not just like your overall budget, but whatever it costs for that. And then also they'll ask for a list of board members. Um, a lot of times it's first to see if there's a conflict of interest. So like if you have a board member that is related to in some way the foundation, then typically they can't fund you just for legal purposes. But then also if they see like, oh, I know this person, they're a really good community stakeholder, or this organization has a councilman or the mayor on their board. It usually kind of, it can also give you a little more clout that way. What, so. What makes a budget board approved? Is it a stamp on it or what? Um, essentially, like they wouldn't have direct proof of that, but as kind of just a general best practice, every year whenever your fiscal year starts, um, the board will have a budget and then they'll have to just vote to make sure that it's okay. And then it will be logged in um, the minutes for whenever. No one really asked for that, but just in case they do, they usually will ask for that specifically. Um, so here are the elements to writing a grant. Um, there's a lot of things, once again, like they don't always ask everything, but this is kind of the general things that they'll usually ask. First is they'll ask information about your organization. They'll ask for a, a history. So how did your organization get started? Um, what, what do you guys do? Why did you guys get this thing started in the first place? Um, and then they'll also ask a little bit about your staff, like how many staff you have? Do you have paid part-time, full-time, volunteers? Um, do you have interns? Things like that. Um, they'll ask about your programs, like what programs you have specifically. Like if you have a feeding program, do you have an after-school program? For example, our organization, we have um, our after-school program, which is kind of morphed into a learning pod. Over the summer, we do a separate six-week summer program to kind of keep our kids sharp throughout the year. Um, we also do a backpack outreach right before the start of school where we fill up like 500 backpacks filled with school supplies do like a big party. Hopefully we're praying that we'll be able to do that this year. Um, and then also we've just started a preschool to kind of continue to help our kids along educationally. So whatever those programs are, a lot of times they'll also ask for numbers. So like we served 300 kids in our feeding program over the last year. Um, once again, it kind of depends on the organization. Also, they'll ask for your location. A lot of times certain foundations will only give to a certain area or region. Like it might be very county specific, it might be city specific. It all depends once again on the foundation. A lot of them you'll see it right in like the application process. Um, they'll also ask like what's your, the scope of focus because usually foundations will have specific things that they're focusing on, whether it's education, economic development, environmental, um, whatever they may focus on. Typically they'll make sure that you actually fit what they, they want to do. And then also they'll ask if you have a 501c3 a lot of times too. If you, like say if you focus on character development, career exploration, is it okay to say that you're focused, you know, to make it specific for that grant even though you do like several things? Okay. Yeah. Um, a lot of times we, like, if it's something to kind of do with education, we'll go towards it. 
Um, also, our community is 97% African American. So a lot of times, like if there's something with like racial and social justice, we'll go towards it. Um, sometimes, whether it's like human rights or something like that, um, it all kind of depends on. Um, social emotional learning is also a big thing. Mental health, since we have we actually have a licensed social worker on staff, um, so. Yeah, like a lot of times, whatever their scope of focus is, sometimes you can kind of maneuver around it depending on um, what you're doing specifically. Because um, even something like um, starting like a league, you can talk about like physical health because there's a lot of foundations that do stuff with health. Um, so a lot of times that's kind of how they start, like who you are, what you do. Um, and then they'll ask for, okay, so what exactly... What's the problem? What exactly are you trying, what needs are you trying to fill? And a lot of times they'll make it sound like, so what's your needs? And they're not talking about like, what does your organization need? But what needs are you fulfilling? Yeah. So like, if you're, if you're filling a need for food, it's really important to say, these are the issues that we see with food insecurity in our neighborhood. Um, and a lot of times it's really important to have some kind of stats with that. So um, this is where a lot of like research comes in, like looking at like census data and things like that, saying things like our neighborhood has a very low income area. Like for example, our, our specific neighborhood where we, where we live, our median income is about $15,000. Um, and we see, and Cleveland is, a very impoverished um, city in general. They're um, the, the top rated city when it comes to child poverty and third rated overall as far as like big cities go. Um, and saying stats like that really help kind of drive home that A, you know that there's actually that need there, you're not just kind of making it up, but then it also shows that you have some kind of expertise on it and you know that that's something that you really want to change. So it's important to have specific stats. Also, they like a very um, specific description of the people that you're trying to serve. So kind of picture like the typical person that would be in whatever program you're doing. Whether that's a typical family, whether that's a typical adult, whether it's a typical youth, child, and kind of have that mindset of this is who we're trying to serve. These are the people that we're targeting. Um, whether it's people in a specific neighborhood, people in a specific zip code, um, or whatever. Um, they typically like that to be pretty specific. Um, next is a project description. A lot of times they want to give like an overview of what exactly, what exactly does this program look like. If I were to step in the doors, what would I see happen from start to finish? Um, once again, be as specific as you can. You want to kind of give them that visual image of this is what this looks like. This is what I want them to see. This is how we're meeting that need that we see is so hard in our neighborhood. Um, they usually also ask for, like, what's your activities? So from start to finish, what is this project going to look like? So it can start with, let's say, if you are doing an after-school program, starting three weeks before school, we're calling teachers, we're calling parents to enroll the students in the program. We start on this date. These are the different activities we're going to do throughout the year. And then this day, we're going to end. So having that activities and that timeline to show that, once again, that thought was, like, that there was actually thought put placed in this program. It's something that we've really thought through that we're really working towards. And obviously, like, for example, with COVID, everything changed. Um, and foundations understand that, especially like when you're in the middle of a program, you might have to shift for whatever reason, whether it's like a pandemic hits or you lose staffing, or it seems like one way isn't working, so we're gonna try another way. And that's fine. They just want to see that there's a plan in place. Um, and COVID has changed a little bit of like the specifics with this because like you never know what's going to happen and things could easily change. So 
Um, next is they usually ask for goals, objectives, and outcomes. A lot of times you can kind of figure these out what, through what's called the logic model, where you kind of go and think, these are the things that I'm going to have, the staff I'm going to have, the, the clients I'm going to serve, the, the people that will be coming through my door. And then you kind of think through, okay, so they go through my program. What's going to happen at the end? What's going to be the short-term outcomes? What are going to be the things that I get out of this program like right from the start? So if you're doing a feeding program, that would be our people are fed. Two years down the road, what's that going to look like? Um, people are healthier. People are stronger. People have the means to do what they need. And then like 10, 15 years down the road, what's that going to look like? My people are going to be a people that lead the city as opposed to being struggling by it. Um, we're going to see the end of hunger in this small community. Um, so a lot of times, as you go through it, you kind of figure those out. So goals would be kind of your broad aim. So like, if you're doing um, an after-school program, we're ending lit the illiteracy problems in Cleveland. Like, that's kind of our organization. That's kind of our general goal. Like, we want to make sure that all of our kids don't have such a low reading level. Because in our neighborhood, about three out of every four adults read below a third grade reading level. And it's hard to succeed in life when you can barely read a job application or can't really navigate a bus schedule. Or even if you have a job, there are certain things that you can and cannot do just because, like, you don't have those tools to do it. So our goal as the Learning Center, as missionaries, is to help our people succeed. And through that, also give them the love of Jesus. Um, so, like, that's, that's what goals are. Objectives are a lot more specific. So, like, kind of how you've heard, like, the term smart, simple, measurable, attainable, realistic, and timely. Kind of saying, like, over the next year, we are going to get meals to 500 people. 500 families will have at least one hot meal throughout the year. Like, that would be kind of what an objective would be considered. Um, and then outcomes would be the general result. Like, our neighborhood in general is better. Our, our schools have the highest reading levels that they've had in 25 years. Violence will continue to decrease at a historic rate. Kind of having those ideas, because especially you want to think bigger, because first of all, like, there's a lot of needs out there. But secondly, when you think bigger, when you have that big vision, foundations, um, private donors, corporations will want to be a part of that. They'll want to say, like, yeah, I want to help end literacy in Cleveland. I want to help change the world in Columbus. Like, when you have that bigger mindset, that's when we start to see people continue to join you. And also, like, our God isn't just a small God either. Like, God doesn't just want to see, like, a couple people's lives change. He knows that through different means, we can see not just lives improved, but lives transformed. Because as people are going through the doors and getting food, they're not just getting just random food. This is going to sound weird, but they're getting, like, spiritual food. And when they go out, they're going to be different people. And it's not just going to be like the nonprofit piece that like changes them. It's going to be the love of God. And through that, we have to kind of display that to the people that we're talking to. Um, another step is evaluation. A lot of times they will ask, okay, so how will you make sure that you're actually going to meet your goals? Um, and this can be done in a variety of ways. So if, let's say, your goal is literacy, you can do like a pre and post test to see how well the students read at the beginning of the program and afterwards. Um, with feeding, a lot of times it's kind of those direct numbers. So making sure that you keep track of attendance and things like that. With the, the evaluation, that would be a projection to begin with when you're doing a grant application? Yeah. On the front end? Okay. Yeah, and then also like how you would how you would measure that projection. So like at some point I'm assuming you would have to send the actual numbers. Yeah. In order to maintain funding. 
Yeah, usually like most grant applications are for a year. Right. So like they'll ask, so you make your projections at the beginning, and then at the end of the year you'll have to kind of report back. So we said we were going to get 200, and we got 150. Right. Usually that's not a problem, right. um, but typically they'll ask kind of what are those specific numbers there. Um, so yeah, a lot of times also pre and post surveys, um, like creating the idea of like how satisfied was this person. How, how engaged were they throughout it? Um, but usually, like, when it comes to evaluation, it all depends on what your program is going towards. So like, if you're doing a daycare, you could be surveying the parents to see, like, is this something that's worked for them? Um, if you're doing like, some kind of education thing, usually pre and post test is the easiest, but you can do it however best fits your specific organization. Um, and last, they'll ask about funding. Um, they'll ask, once again, for a budget. Um, they look for, some have like a very specific format, like they'll say, please fill out our specific budget format, which usually isn't too bad, because usually you can kind of transpose numbers. Um, but a lot of times they'll ask for that. Also, they'll ask for like a budget narrative which is essentially like writing out, okay, so my staffing costs this much, and this is kind of why it costs that much. So like if it costs $50,000 to have a program director in place, and then kind of, just to kind of say in words, or if you, have a, if you have a number, you have to tell a story. Yeah, you have to tell the story with it. So like if it costs $10,000 to feed people, you have to say like, Where's the food coming from? How, what's like the unit price? All that stuff. Um, also, they'll ask for the sources of funding. So typically, this isn't always the case, but a lot of times um, foundations won't want to fund fully a program. They only want to fund a piece of it. So let's say if your program costs $50,000, a lot of times they won't approve a grant for $50,000. They'll want to make sure that there's other players in that just to make sure that there's some sustainability there. So they'll ask like, okay, so where is this other funding coming from? Is it coming from individual donors? Is it coming from corporations? Is it coming from other foundations? If so, what are those foundations and how much and everything like that? Um, so that's just one way to kind of show like, once again, it's a good business practice to make sure that not everything is coming from one place. And like, that's something with church anyway. If all the tithes and offerings came from one person and that person left, there'd be a big problem. So it's always good to have kind of that balance. And they'll also ask usually for a specific statement of sustainability. Like, say our foundation can't fund you next year, how are you going to make sure that this thing continues? Um, and a lot of times that could be through other foundation funding. Um, if you're charging a fee, like especially like for childcare or something like that, charging a fee is okay for a nonprofit, and you actually still don't have to. Um, you don't get taxed for that, as long as it's specific to your thing. I'll get to more of that in a second. Um, but they want to make sure that if they're going to put their money in it and their name's going to be attached to it, that it's not going to be something that flames out in a couple years. They want to make sure that you have a plan. And obviously there are some programs that they'll fund and it just won't work. We've had that before. We tried piloting a program for out-of-school suspensions. It didn't really work out too well, but that doesn't mean that um, we didn't do things the right way and everything like that. So they just want to know that there's a plan in place. Um, so that's kind of the, the basics of a grant application. Um, like I said, some will ask some questions, some won't, but normally they'll at least try to hit most of these areas. So here's a few nonprofit myths. I think there's a lot of things that people kind of don't fully understand with nonprofits. The first is that nonprofits aren't allowed to make money. And I know it sounds weird because it's called a nonprofit, but the term nonprofit isn't talking about like the, the money that you make, but where the profits go. The word is surplus. Yeah. You can't use profit, but you can say surplus. Exactly. Because like, with like a for-profit business, the board of directors, the CEO, whoever, 
they get any excess surplus money and they can put it in their pockets. As a nonprofit, you're not allowed to do that. Um, but if, let's say, your program costs $100,000 and you raise $120,000, that $20,000 can either, one of two things can happen to it. Either one, you could donate it to another nonprofit. Um, a lot of times, that's how a lot of ministries operate. So they have a nonprofit that makes a profit margin, and then that money then goes and rolls to the church. Or you can also keep it within the nonprofit itself and then use it for like the following fiscal year. So if you're making $20,000, that means you're starting out that year with $20,000. So, um, and there are nonprofits like the NFL up until about 2015 was actually operating as a nonprofit. Um, actually, a lot of the sports leagues um, operated as nonprofits back in the day. They weren't 501c3s. I forgot the exact IRS code, but um, back in the day, like they were technically nonprofits. A lot of their profits, though, they still had to pay tax on them because it wasn't their original mission, which is also kind of a big thing with nonprofits. So let's say you are a feeding program and then you acquire a house to use as like rental income. That rental income is not considered part of your mission since your mission is to feed people. That would be considered taxable income. And that's something to kind of keep in mind. Anything that you do that's towards your mission is not taxable, but anything that is unrelated to it would be. Um, second, if you receive funding, you can't talk about Jesus. I feel like that's a very big myth that's out there. Essentially, as a nonprofit, if your primary mission is what you're doing, anything afterwards, most of the time they don't care. A lot of times, nonprofits or foundations will say, um, like, religious organizations can't apply. And typically what they mean is like, you can't use this grant funding for like Sunday morning service. If you're doing a feeding program and you're talking about Jesus while you're doing it, that's fine. That's still within what you're doing. Technically the nonprofit's mission isn't a Jesus mission, but also we know that it is. Because it's more just a a way that we can get people. It's a way that we can meet with people and talk about Jesus. Government grants can be a little bit different depending on which one you do. Um, but a lot of them also, if it's a faith-based organization and you're still doing your primary mission, you're still eligible for the funding. You wouldn't lose it. Um, a lot of times also foundations will say you can't exclude people that are of different faiths, which like as Christians, we need everybody to come in. So it doesn't matter necessarily. Like if they say like, oh, you can't proselytize people. Like technically that's not, that is your goal, but it's not your goal. You know what I mean? Like sometimes it seems like we shouldn't be able to do it, but it's still a lab. Um, also grants will solve all your financial issues. Um, Yes, grants can really, really help continue to grow your organization. Like I've said, we've seen it now in our own context, but it also doesn't solve if there's issues financially within your church, whether it's like issues with tithing, whether it's issues with different expenses. Like grants can help, but they're not going to be the end-all, be-all answer. It could be an answer. It can help kind of continue to form what you're doing. It can help raise up new leaders, create the Ohio for Jesus mentality where we're raising up new people and it can help pay those people to stay as opposed to going somewhere else. It can help create more full-time ministers, but it also won't be the only answer to everything. Sometimes it's really hard to find grants for specific programs, especially if it's like a building program. Um, a, lot of, a lot of foundations are a little hesitant on it. Um, also, grants are easy to get. Um, they can be very challenging. That's why like, typically like grant writers will make like $20, $25 an hour. And that's not by accident, because sometimes they can be very challenging. You think you have it really good. There was a grant that we wrote a couple of weeks ago. We thought it was really good. We thought it was there, and we didn't get it. So sometimes they can be very challenging. That's why it's also important to not just do one, but to do several. And then also grants are free money. Um, typically, there's two types of grants. There's like restricted and unrestricted. 
Um, a lot of times, grant writers, well, grant makers will say, you can only use it for this specific program. And then a lot of times, depending on the foundation, they'll want like a dollar by dollar account of how you spent everything. Um, once again, it depends on the organization. Organizations have been a little lenient, especially during COVID-19, because they used to be very specific, like you can only use it for this purpose for this amount of time, whatever. But now they've been a little bit more lenient to using it more towards what they call general operating funds as opposed to specific programs. But something that I would say is that you should probably do it more towards um, like a specific project. I'll get to that in a second. So last but not least, here's a few ticks, tricks and tips. First of all, get your grant done ahead of time. If the grant application is due April 30th, you should probably have it done a couple weeks ahead of time. That way you can look it over. And also if you submit it early, it looks good for you and kind of gets you a little bit more noticed. And partially also for the second reason, try to seek feedback on it. Have someone else read it. Um, and possibly also from the grant maker, especially if you've called them ahead of time, you've kind of explained it. You can say, here, this is what I've written. What do you think? And depending on the situation, a lot of times they'll still look at it and they'll give you feedback. So that way you can go back, edit it, change it, and make it better. Um, also, they look for reasons to reject people. Um, don't give them one. Um, part of it is the church name. There's been times where they don't really look at our organization, but they see the symbol of a cross in our logo, and they think that we're a church. Um, that's part of the reason why I say as a separate 501c3, if it has a different name that doesn't say like Assembly of God in it, they'll give it more of a look. But also, I know that that's a big process too. So, But also make sure that it's free of typos, grammar errors, and things like that. Um, also, unrealistic numbers. It shouldn't cost a volunteer to make $110,000. Um, like food-wise, if it costs like $50,000 to give 100 people a meal, it might look a little suspicious. So make sure that your numbers are realistic, whether you're looking them up. Like if, let's say, you were doing food and how much it would cost to get it catered. Um, look stuff up like that. And also outdated info. Um, if you're giving statistics from 2012, it's not going to look that good because those statistics are nine years old. A lot of things could have changed. Um, and like I said before, trying to use support, project support grants or program support grants kind of helps, mainly for this next thing. When you kind of say, this program costs this amount of money, you can implement staff costs into that. Because obviously, like, if you're running a program, it's going to take people to run it especially if it's like a full-time operation. So if you include it as part of what you're doing overall, it can really help to make sure that you're getting the support that you need. A lot of times, especially starting out, um, foundations are hesitant to give just general operating support. Once again, that's been a bit of a shift in the last year or so, but it's still the case for a lot of people. Um, also, a lot of times in grant applications, they'll say, like, you have a 5,000 character limit or 750 words or less. Don't feel like you have to fill every character or every word in there. Try to be specific as you can, but don't feel like you have to include everything. Um, and what I would suggest is a lot of times, like, grant applications, especially nowadays, they're through, like, online portals. What I would do is take all of the questions that they're asking, put it in a separate document, and then cut and paste. Because a lot of times, like, if you're working through the document, you'll be typing all this stuff out, and then because you haven't clicked anything in 15 minutes, it'll lock you out, and all your work's gone. So cutting and pasting, and then also if, like, you're sending it with people, it's very easy for you guys to collaborate and all of that stuff. Um, something else I would suggest is seeking the help of local college students. Um, with our new nonprofit, the Tavern Coffee House, I have about four interns that are helping us do some fundraising. Um, college kids love it because they get the experience on it, they get to put it on their resume, and also a lot of times with nonprofit work, they're very passionate about it, especially like 
the younger Gen Zers, they love doing a lot of the stuff to help change the community. So seek out your local college, especially if they have like a social work field, especially if they have a nonprofit field. And I'm not even just talking with grants, you can seek their help for videography. Like if your church wants to do like a new video, you could probably go to somebody at a local college and they'll do it for free. Mainly because they can add that to their portfolio and be like, this is what I did. And then you also get it for free. So seek out their help. Here's a couple tools that I have found that are completely free that can really help. First is the Foundation Center. It's a website that gives you basically any grant maker that you want. So like if you're doing, say, after school program in Toledo, Ohio, you'll type it in and it'll populate all of the different organizations that give to it. And then they'll tell you like the deadlines, how much they typically give, who their board of directors are, what you have to do, contact information. It's a great resource. You can probably access it from home now, um, especially since like a lot of places, a lot of libraries have been shut down for so long. Um, if you go on the Foundation Center's website, they also have specific libraries throughout the country where you can go there and access it for free. But if those libraries might or might not be open, a lot of them have had it on just on their website. I know for a fact the Cleveland Public Library has that. So if you look up like Cleveland, Ohio, you can click it. More than likely you'll be able to access it. And it's a great tool for you to use. It can give you a good list of people to start reaching out to. Um, also the bottom two, they're both free for nonprofits. Canva is a um, kind of like a Photoshop tool where you can create good flyers, good brochures, business cards, whatever, anything like graphic designy, and it can look really good. You can use kind of their templates. Uh, Canva. Um, and then also... Is the free? Yes. Yeah, for nonprofits, yeah. Um, yeah. So, so, yeah, like all you have to do is submit like an application with your uh, 501c3 letter just to show that you have it. So that's also something that you can use for your churches. So you can like create like flyers for any events that you're doing and they can look very professional. Also G Suite, like all of the Google stuff. So like doing like Gmail with like your church's website at the end. That's also free for nonprofits. So I don't know if you're paying for it or if you're using something else, but that's something that we use for um, all of our different organizations because it's free. And then they also have like shared drives and stuff like that. So, um, so if you need any help with this, I can help you. Um, I have some experience with it. Um, and also as a missionary, I know sometimes, especially nowadays with um, the pandemic, sometimes doing a typical missions window might not be the best. But I can support your church because I don't see missions as just like a me thing. I see it as a we thing. That's why like, I call any of our supporters a CLE team because we're part of a team. Um, so if this is something that you would love some extra help with, um, I don't know, did anyone not get our cards? Um, you can contact us. We have a website. Um, we're also on social media a lot. So, um, do you guys have any questions? Oh, I have tons. <laughs> yeah. do, do you recommend professional grant writers just for us starting out with stuff? Like, uh, yeah. Um, like, does it really pay off or is it, does it make the difference? It could. Um, it all depends on um, what you have and who you actually go to. Because um, sometimes it is better to have someone that's in the organization writing the grants, but I also know it takes a lot of time and effort to do that. So it all depends on who you get. I have seen some organizations that have like a professional grant writer, and it works for them great. So, How do you connect a professional grant writer? Like, uh, you just Google need professional grant writer daycare Grove City, Ohio? Yeah, that would probably be the best. Um, a lot of times, too, a lot of grant writers can work throughout the entire country. It is probably better to do regional because then they'll know a lot of the people that 
like will serve in your area. Um, but like I said, it all depends on um, what would work best for you. As far as setting up your nonprofit from the get-go, because you're talking about being able to reach far, is it better or to do a more specific ministry setup or a more diverse? Do you um, understand my question? Yeah. I would say it's probably best to start very specific. That like way. Foundation. Yeah. Because, like, and especially if you're doing, like, one thing towards, like, a specific mission, you can always branch that out depending on what that's going to look like. So you can add arms later? Yeah. Okay. Do you recommend any software for nonprofits, and what grad school are you going to? Um, grad school I'm going to is Lindenwood University. It's on, yeah, it's online um, in St. Um, St. Charles, Missouri. Um, as far as foundation software, I don't have a ton of recommendations. Um, one that I've seen that works really good, but it can be a little pricey, is Network for Good. Um, they do a lot of the, like you know how people do like the Facebook fundraisers. Um, Network for Good is connected with that. So that would be the one that I would recommend, but like I said, it could be kind of pricey, so. Any other questions? Well, thank you. Yeah, so you guys have my information. Feel free to reach out. <laughs>